Hello again and welcome to episode two of Carnell Knowledge. That's Carnell, not Carnell. If you were searching for Carnell Knowledge and ended up listening to this, then you're probably going to be disappointed. Well, give it a try, you never know. Anyway, in episode one, For Whom the Bell Tolls, I talked about how economists would advise policymakers on the lockdowns to be making all of our lives a misery. And while I could delve a bit deeper into the COVID-19 pandemic and its likely effects, I thought I'd return to a subject I've written a lot about in recent months. So, in episode two, back to the 70s, let me take you on a journey in time to when I was a boy with much too long hair, my dad sported alarming facial hair, fashions were appalling, and the music, well, that was perhaps its only redeeming feature, giving us both disco and then punk rock. But as far as the economy went, the main feature that most people associate with the era of wing collars and stack heels was stagflation. Recently, a number of fairly prominent economists have written articles suggesting that one of the most likely outcomes of the COVID-19 pandemic is a return to stagflation. In turn, I've been writing that this is nonsense. And of all the things I've written in the last few years, I have never received as much feedback as I have on this subject. So no apologies for plunging back in and giving it another look now. Okay, stagflation, what exactly is it? Well, a simple answer is that it's a combination of stagnation, namely slower growth and high unemployment, and inflation. But I think we need to go a little further than that, because many of the articles that suggest a return to stagflation also suggest that this might be something that could actually help households, corporations, indeed governments, to deflate away their debt piles. And as COVID-19 keeps economies repressed, these debt piles are growing into, well, debt mountains. Now, this suggests a couple of things. Firstly, in order to de deliver such a useful debt deflating function, this needs to be a sustained impact. It's no good having inflation spike up for just one year. That isn't going to do a lot to the debt burden. It needs years and years to have this sort of effect. Secondly, stagflation seems in some circles to be being portrayed as a kind of horrific outcome. Oh no! Stagflation's coming. We'll all be wearing wing collar shirts and humming along to Boney M by Christmas. Actually, if we end up with any sort of outcome that delivered a bit more inflation, it could be a blessing. There may not be all that much we can do about the stag bit of stagflation, but I'd argue that that is a better outcome in some ways than all-out stagnation, where growth and unemployment remains awful, but the debt burden also weighs heavily. Stagflation actually offers a hope of a time when debt is no longer a massive drag on the economy, and in turn, a return to better times. All of which is a bit depressing, as I don't think stagflation is coming. Why not? Let's run through the arguments for stagflation and see where it all falls down. And by the way, thanks to an erstwhile colleague for his recent email on this subject, which has prompted me to return to it. Keep them coming. I'll give you the message address later. And okay, I'm not the BBC, but other views on this are available, and for balance, if you want an alternative view to mine, I'd recommend looking up an article by Brian Redding of OMFIF called Welcome to a World of Stagflation, but you can find plenty of others by just doing a Google search. They all follow roughly the following argument. Firstly, the impact of COVID-19 is currently to depress growth, but there will come a time when it's no longer weighing on growth so much, and the economy will begin to recover. Actually, perhaps now, as lockdowns start to be eased. Demand will begin to increase, though from a very low base. 
That recovery in demand, however, will face the inevitable destruction of supply that has taken place during this pandemic, despite all the stimulus measures from both fiscal and monetary policy. Finally, add rising demand with curtailed supply and you end up with a recipe for rising inflation, they say, but coupled with high unemployment. Now, some of the articles also weave in a confusing overlay of productivity, which delivers a sense of authority, but one which I think is entirely spurious. And this next bit is a bit of a diversion, but it's a particular bugbear of mine. So let me tell you something about productivity. Basically, as soon as you start supporting your arguments for various outcomes by citing productivity, you are already heading down a pathway of utter nonsense. Here's why. And I'm going to name drop a former colleague who is now Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, and who I briefly shared an office with back in the mid-1990s at HM Treasury UK, Ben Broadbent. Sorry, Ben. Now, Ben was, and still is, a very clever chap, and I understood about one comment in ten that he made during the few brief months that our careers overlapped. But this one remark he made really hit home. Productivity, he said, is a residual. This seemingly innocuous remark is actually genius, as probably were all the other things he said, which I didn't understand. How so? Well, however you define productivity, whether output per hour worked or output per worker, both are legitimate, it's the two terms output and employment, or output and hours worked, that are doing all the work here. Productivity changes are almost entirely cyclical and offer no additional information or insight into the economy, whether this is related to growth, inflation, or anything else for that matter that you do not already know. Innate shifts in productivity are very rare and usually minuscule in their impact on the economy. Some governments spend huge amounts of energy trying to boost productivity with all sorts of supply-side policies, and the result of this is to deliver economic performance that is barely distinguishable between those that do not. The UK and France in the 1990s, for example. But as I said, all this is a diversion, because all that you're really saying, if you're arguing that rising productivity will follow the economic recovery, is that output will pick up faster than employment. I can buy that. I just think that it makes it even harder to argue in favour of a stagflation argument. I'll come to, back to that in a minute. Let's get back to the recovery and what we might expect in terms of prices as the recovery continues. Well, we will still probably have substantial social distancing restrictions, and that will prevent many service sector industries, restaurants, bars, retail, from achieving the same footfall and turnover as in the past. Their fixed costs won't probably have fallen. So for those firms that survive the pandemic, and not all will, there will be a strong incentive for them to push up their margins and raise prices. Hang on, I can almost hear you crying. Isn't this exactly what you said wasn't going to happen? Well, hold on a second and listen carefully, because if you remember, one of the key aspects of stagflation I mentioned is that it is not a flash in the pan. It's enduring. And that is what ultimately is going to deliver the salvation to the growing debt issue, if it happens. What I described before with firms pushing up prices to widen mar margins is a one-off price level adjustment, just like what you get if the government raises sales taxes or VAT, depending on where you live. Many of the retail goods and services we've enjoyed at lower prices will suddenly become less affordable, and the inflation rate will spike higher for a year or so. And this is where authors like Brian Redding suggest stagflation takes off with state statements like, in the competitive struggle for income, 
employees will exert economic power over cash-strapped employers. Brian does hit on the critical nub for the stagflation argument, but in my opinion, his equation doesn't add up. For one thing, all the earlier stuff about productivity growth, whilst not necessary in my view, does point fairly conclusively in one direction. Unemployment in the coming years is likely to be far higher than it was in the years immediately pre-COVID, when for many economists it was at decade or even record lows. That seems fairly uncontroversial, but that fact alone undermines the notion that labour is going to have any sort of bargaining power with employers over wages, and without this, the one-off margins reset and resulting price-level shocks are simply an adjustment that reduces the purchasing power of household incomes. While price levels rise and the rate of inflation follows for a time, without a mechanism to drive a wage response and then a further margin response from employers, within a year, inflation will be trending lower again, even if central banks maintain their ultra-accommodative stances. This is crucial to the stagflation argument. And to reiterate, I have no problem with the notion that there is a price adjustment during the recovery. To me, this looks like a simple transfer of real incomes from labour to capital, and the fact that there is still likely to be high levels of unemployment makes that even more likely as this substantially undermines labour's economic muscle in the struggle for, as Reading puts it, economic power. But actually, that power struggle has been unequal for decades. Let's think about the economies of today against those of the 1970s. The initial spark for the inflation surges in the 70s and early 80s came from rising oil prices, driven by OPEC. OPEC these days looks like a busted flush, and the percentage of oil in production globally is a fraction of what it once was. This isn't coming back. Much more importantly, widespread unionisation and collective bargaining were the driving forces behind national wage agreements back then, with unions wielding strike power to achieve their ends. Unionisation today is a fraction of what it once was, and such collective bargaining agreements are rare. And that is partly because such agreements were usually driven from the manufacturing sectors of the economy. Today, not only do we not have much unionisation, we also have much smaller manufacturing economies and much larger service sectors. And one of the results of this is that firm-specific skills that workers in manufacturing used to have and which gave them bargaining power, they couldn't be easily replaced by their employers, at least not without costly retraining, has given way to highly transferable service sector skills, like being familiar with Microsoft Office, that just about anybody has. And jobs, whether in manufacturing or services, are increasingly replaceable by technology. Roboticization in manufacturing, artificial intelligence and algorithms in services. Globalization is sometimes thrown into this argument as a further source for inflation. But the reality is that while it may not be as much of a disinflationary force as it has been in recent decades, it is much more likely that rather than outright reversal, globalization will simply change in terms of its importance. On the whole, I still anticipate the sign of the coefficient of globalization on global price levels to be negative, even if the size of that coefficient declines in the coming years and decades. All the factors above are important, because when we think of one of the other features of stagflation that was a factor in the 1970s, it was also the accommodative stance of central banks that also played a part. Right now, 
with quantitative easing becoming the norm and struggling to justify the description of unorthodox monetary policy anymore, interest rates knocking on zero or in some cases straying into negative territory, could central bank policy be any more accommodative? The answer is probably, but not much. But I think there's a strong case to be made for saying that this simply doesn't matter. And here's why. In the years before COVID-19, central banks from the US Federal Reserve, Bank of England, European Central Bank and Bank of Japan all had one thing in common. Following the global financial crisis, and in some cases long preceding it, despite hugely accommodative monetary policy, none of these economies achieved their inflation targets on a consistent basis. Most undershot it most of the time, and certainly on average. And this was often coupled with rates of unemployment that on historical comparisons were extremely low and would in the past have delivered much higher inflation. Now, all of this will be the subject matter of another episode, which will take a critical look at inflation targets and bring in all sorts of ideas like the collapse of Phillips curve. But the basic point is this. We can't generate inflation today, even when everything in the economy is in perfect alignment and central banks are printing cash fit to bust. Roger Bootle was quite prescient about the death of inflation and absent artificial measures, such as return of indexation of wages or a gradual ratcheting up of sales taxes, can't be entirely ruled out, then we simply aren't ever going to see inflation doing anything more and spiking temporarily higher in the future, whatever the shocks. The absence of labour power, irrespective of the state of unemployment, means no cost-push spiral, where rising wages drive higher prices and then more wage increases and so on. And without this, there will be no stagflation. Uncomfortable price rises on everything from a restaurant meal to a haircut? Yes. But these price increases won't occur year after year, and after the first iteration, may in any case be dominated by the essentially disinflationary impact of falling real household incomes and may begin to reverse. And as I intimated earlier, I think that in some ways this is a shame, as high and rapidly rising debt ratios are likely to be weighing on our economies for years to come. And how we get out of this is definitely a contender for a future episode, along with a probable death of central bank inflation targets. That's where I'm going to leave it this time. There is clearly a rich seam of similar material for the next few episodes, and I think I'll keep my options open for exactly which I pick for next time. But if you have any suggestions for subjects I should cover, or comments on this episode, then please leave them on anchor.fm forward slash Robert Carnell. And as usual, if you didn't absolutely hate this podcast, or in fact, even if it left you apoplectic with rage, then please recommend it to a friend or a colleague to see if it causes the same effect. Until next time, bye.